You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. you got your Bibles, would you open them up to John chapter 5? Uh, we're continuing on through. Last time we were here in John 5, we looked at the story of the paralyzed man by the pool of Bethesda. He'd been severely disabled for 38 years, had been laying by the pool for a very long time, hoping for a chance to be healed. Every sick or injured person who was laying around that pool knew that if you're the first one to get into the waters... When the angel stirred them, you'd be healed, but only if you're the first, not the second, not the third, not the 23rd. Everyone else missed out on what they so desperately sought. This poor man had no chance of being the first in. He was too badly crippled by his ailment. His legs are useless. All they do is get in the way and slow him down, and they constantly remind him that he has no hope and even that is beyond hope. For whatever reason, his family or his friends don't hang around to help him. And maybe they've got jobs to go to, or maybe they're sick of the black cloud of depression that surrounds him and feel like they need a break from him. He's alone there by the pool in his misery amongst a crowd of maybe hundreds of others. I expect the only way he could get around was to use his hands as his feet, and dragged the rest of his body behind him. You may have seen beggars in some cities for whom that was their only means of travel. It's not an easy way to move around, I expect, and impossible to accelerate up to the speed that he needed if he was going to beat everyone into the pool. Think of the despair this man must have felt, the hopelessness of his situation. It's not that he's occasionally disappointed, it's that he's always disappointed and he knows he'll never get in there first in his condition. So I expect his life consists of the boredom of laying around in that place all day, every day, compounded by the gloom of despair and the depression that his life has been reduced to this misery, increased by listening to the monotonous drone of everyone detailing their symptoms for the millionth time, then multiplied by the frustration of seeing others get healed while he knows that he'll never be whole again. Never. He is imprisoned by his own weakness, and he could wait there forever and never be healed. Never. At least until Jesus arrives on the scene. After this, it tells us in John 5 verse 1, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of individuals, blind, lame and paralyzed. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he, that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps in before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. 
Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not, did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So at this pool in Jerusalem, there lay a multitude of individuals, blind, lame, paralyzed. And there was one man there who'd been an invalid for 38 years. John's Gospel explores a lot of different relationships and a lot of different people. And it explores how these people all respond to Jesus in different ways. The first one we come across in John's Gospel is John the Baptist back in chapter 1. Although he doesn't yet at the start of chapter 1 know who Jesus is, he works tirelessly to prepare people for Jesus to come by preaching repentance and to pointing people to Christ, the Lamb of God. Then John introduces us to various working class folk who are just going about their business when Jesus calls them to follow him. Something about this call causes them to down tools and follow after him and call their friends and family along too. These new followers gradually begin to believe in Jesus as they hear his teaching and see his miracles, beginning with the water turned into wine, one of several miracles that Jesus does behind the scenes. It's a long time before their faith solidifies into something unshakable, but the seeds of it are here. The other Gospels reveal to us that Jesus' own family, his mother and his brothers and his sisters, think that Jesus is a bit of a fruit loop initially, truly a prophet, no honor in his own household. In chapter 2, Jesus stirs up trouble in Jerusalem when he overturns the tables of the money changers and the animal traders in the temple courts. These businessmen and religious leaders were not happy with him for publicly exposing their greed and exploitation. So they demand Jesus prove his credentials by performing a miracle for them. Jesus, of course, gives them nothing. Jesus marches to the beat of his own drum. Actually, Jesus marches to the beat of his father's drum and no one will make Jesus deviate from that path. In chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness to meet him. Nicodemus is one of the Pharisees, the ruling class. Nicodemus is highly educated and he's the leading teacher in Israel. For all his knowledge of the scriptures, though, he's not sure what to make of Jesus especially when Jesus tells him that he must be born again. Poor old Nicodemus leaves just as confused as when he arrived, maybe more so. Then Jesus heads off in chapter 4 into Samaria, a region of heretics and half-breeds, to meet with a woman with an unsavoury reputation, a woman who's an outcast even in her own village. His conversation with this woman stirs something within her that apparently results in this woman becoming the first person who is genuinely born again. 
In her newfound faith and enthusiasm, she rushes off to tell her fellow townsfolks, the, one, the ones who previously ignored and rejected her, about this Jesus. They come to meet him for themselves and taking Jesus at his word, seem to have been born again as well. From there, Jesus goes back into familiar territory in Galilee, and there crowds assemble, hoping to see him perform some magic tricks for them. They're not interested in what Jesus has to say. They just want to be entertained by him. But there is one amongst that crowd, a royal official, powerful, wealthy, influential, one used to getting his own way, who also wants to see Jesus. This man, in fact, is desperate to see Jesus, not because he's specifically after some magic tricks, but he wants Jesus to come down to Capernaum and to heal his son, who is at the point of death. Jesus refuses to go with him, instead telling the man, go, your son will live. For whatever reason, this man believes Jesus. He takes him in his word, and he hangs around Cana overnight. And he doesn't head off home until the next day. And on his way home, he gets the good news that his son has been healed. This man believed Jesus without any evidence of a miracle. And so ultimately, his whole household came to believe. Such a mixed bag. People from all different walks of society, rich and poor, respected and outcast, family member and stranger, working class, ruling class, illiterate, educated, friend, enemy, you name it. Jesus has something to offer all of them, if only they will receive it. And that's the problem. We've not only seen a mixed bag of people who Jesus relates to, we've seen a mixed bag of reactions from them. Some of them merely want to be entertained. Jesus is the latest circus act to come to town and they want to see him perform tricks for them. Some listen to him and follow him, but they're starting from a pretty low base of faith. We'll see their faith grow in Jesus over time. Some, the most unlikely, illiterates and outcasts, need nothing more than the word of Jesus to believe. They don't need miracles as long as Jesus has spoken that's enough for them. We've seen some who scratch their head, wondering what Jesus is on about. They're educated, but confused. They're not willing to believe in him, but they're not prepared to reject him outright. But there's also been outright rejection from some. In fact, from those who should have been the first to receive him. He came to his own, it tells us in John 1.11, and his own people did not receive him. As we're about to see, Jesus stirs such hatred in these people that they begin to plot his death. And in our passage today, we see yet another type of person and yet another type of response. In verse 5, it tells us, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm going down, another gets in before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, 
and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. <clears throat> don't miss what's just happened here. This is stunning. We can be, become so familiar with this story that we miss how dramatic it is. This man's been paralyzed for 38 years. That's longer than the lifetime often of people in that, that period of time in history. But what happens to muscles and limbs when they aren't used? I broke a finger about four months ago. The doctors put a splint on it for a few weeks so that the splinted bone could begin to knit together. But then I had to begin to exercise it. I had to make it work again. Because for every day that that finger remains immobile and unused, the muscles begin to waste away. The tendons shrink. The joints freeze up. And the bones actually become weaker from lack of use. As painful as it is, I still have to move and stretch that finger several times a day if I have any hope of regaining adequate function in the future. Bones need to carry weight to build strength. Muscles need to be worked regularly to remain functional. So how weak and how useless do you think this man's legs would be after 38 years of no use? They must have been scrawny, about as strong looking as a chicken's legs underneath him after all those years. And most likely his legs are covered with cuts and scrapes and pressure sores and ulcers. I imagine it's not a pretty sight. But then Jesus speaks a word to him. Get up, rise, one single word in the Greek, and his legs are healed. Story doesn't tell us how he knows his legs are healed. I guess he could suddenly feel things in them. Perhaps he could feel and see them getting stronger and bulkier. Maybe he could feel life and energy flow into them and he could begin to move them at will. And so when Jesus said, get up, he got up. If you've ever got up suddenly from a several days spent in your sickbed, you'd know how dizzy you can be and how carefully you need to move while you regain your balance. Not this man. He stands up straight and tall. He bends over to pick up his bed, and he walks off, seeing the world from a whole new perspective. For the first time in 38 years, he can talk to someone face to face instead of face to knee. Everything has changed. And everything has changed in an instant. You might imagine that this man didn't just walk off with his bed. He jumped and skipped and ran. Wouldn't you, after 38 years, wouldn't you be so overjoyed that you would dance away? But I'm not so sure that he really did. I'm not so sure that this man really appreciated, really valued what Jesus had done for him. But once it says in verse 9, the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me. That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. 
Now, the Pharisees don't care about this man's healing. They just look to find fault with someone who doesn't measure up to their standards. I wonder how I would respond to their accusation if I'd just been given my life back after 38 years of misery. I'd like to think I'd bite back at them. You must be joking. I've been crippled for 38 years and now suddenly I've been miraculously healed and all you want to do is criticise and find fault? Get a life. Instead, this man passes the buck. Don't blame me. I didn't ask for this. I'm only doing what I was told to do. It's his fault, not mine. So they ask him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Um, no idea. I've never seen him before and I didn't get his name. He snuck out too quickly. I didn't even think to thank him. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. I might be reading too much into this story, but it seems to me that there's a profound lack of gratitude from this man for what Jesus has done. At no time does he thank Jesus, even when Jesus catches up with him in the temple later on. And it never tells us that he believed in Jesus, unlike the Samaritan woman or the royal official. In fact, after this story ends, we never hear from this man again. Verse 14, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Does sin cause physical disabilities or mental illness, I wonder? Sometimes it does, to be sure. Jesus seems to suggest here that the man's problem was caused by his sin when he was younger. But even if that's not the case specifically for this man, we do know that a baby can be born weak and sickly and drug dependent because of its mother's addiction. We do know that a woman can suffer schizophrenia triggered by marijuana use when she was a teenager. We do know that a man can have a crippling brain injury from a life of violence. Sometimes the cause and effect is obvious. Someone's sin, either this individual or someone else, has caused a physical or mental disorder. But that's not always the case. Later on in John's Gospel, we'll meet another man that Jesus healed, also on the Sabbath. But this time it's a man born blind. It's another man who's suffered a lifetime with his ailment. In that story, people want to know whose sin caused his blindness, his own or his parents' sin. Jesus makes it clear that sin didn't cause this man's blindness, at least not directly. All sickness, of course, every ailment, every death, is a consequence of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. But in the blind man's case, the reason he was blind was not specifically because of anyone's sin, but rather to reveal God's glory. If you want to read that for yourself, it's in John chapter 9. But it is true that sin causes spiritual disease, spiritual death. In every case. And spiritual death is a disease that every person on the planet suffers. And the only way to be cured is for Jesus Christ to heal you. So Jesus' warning to this man, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you, is a warning not only to him, but to each and every one of us. 
the frightening thing is that the something worse may include physical or mental illness, but it definitely involves spiritual death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. The man went away, verse 15, and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. It's hard to know for sure what exactly this man thought about the miracle that Jesus had done for him, but he never thanked Jesus. Instead, he shows his gratitude by dobbing Jesus into the authorities. So again, we have a contrast between this man and the man born blind. The man born blind didn't know who Jesus was either, but he stands up to the Pharisees. He defends Jesus. Jesus later on seeks out the man who was formerly blind and introduces himself and the man responds, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. How different is the response of the blind man and the crippled man. It's chalk and cheese. And I think the two different responses tell us something about the heart of each man. The Pharisees, of course, are not happy about either healing. They do what they do best, find fault with others. They don't care that Jesus has set people free from lifelong suffering. They only care that Jesus won't conform to their precious traditions and that Jesus insists on healing people on the Sabbath. This crippled man and this healing is in fact instrumental in turning the Pharisees against Jesus. This is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. From here on in, the Pharisees actively plot to have him killed. I wonder how many people have been turned off of Christ or have turned away from Christ because of our behaviour, because of our witness. We Christians tend to be very imperfect witnesses for Jesus Christ. We tend towards either a joyless legalism or a hypocritical laxity in our behaviour. And neither of those honours our Lord who has worked such a great miracle in us. The Apostle Peter wrote in his letter, 1 Peter 2.12, Be careful how you behave among your unsaved neighbours, for then even if they are suspicious of you and talk against you, they will end up praising God for your good works when Christ returns. God forbid that we should be responsible for turning people into enemies of Christ. Do you want to be healed? There are many ways to answer that question. The Gospels are filled with lots of different responses. Some, like this man by the pool, don't seem so sure. He didn't respond with an enthusiastic yes, but with a miserable complaint. He doesn't seem to show any gratitude for his healing. The Bible tells us of many other responses. Some, like the royal official back in chapter 4, travel long distances to seek Jesus out for healing. You can bet he was grateful, and so was his whole family, for John tells us that his whole household believed. Then there are still others, like the ten lepers that Jesus healed. Nine of them disappear into the background. Only one, and a Samaritan at that, comes back to thank Jesus. Or take Legion, 
the man possessed by so many demons that even chains can't restrain him. Jesus sets him free from his demons with a word, and the man begs to be allowed to follow Jesus. But Jesus sends him away with the instruction, go and tell everyone what God has done for you. So the man obeys, going around telling everyone he meets what Jesus has done for him. There are many possible answers to this question. And what we do with our lives after meeting Jesus reveals just how much we recognize and value what Jesus has done for us. Jesus instructed this man, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. He speaks the same word to us today. Christian friend, what does your life say about how much you value your healing, your salvation? Some of you have been Christians for as long as you can remember. You don't remember what it was like to be crippled in your soul and dead in your spirit. But if you're a Christian today, it is only because Jesus once said to you, get up and walk. And he healed your spiritual body and he put a new heart within you to trust him for your salvation. You may have only been two years old when this happened, but it's no less real than this man's healing was. The miracle is just as great as this cripple's healing, even greater, in fact. He had a physical disability healed. You have been raised from the dead. See, you are well. What have you done with your life since then? Could you say that you've been careful to sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you? Or maybe, like me, you can remember your life, B.C. and A.D. Maybe you still have a clear memory of what your life was like before you met Christ and how it has changed since then. The same applies to you. See you are well, sin no more. What have you done with your life since then? Have you been careful to sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you? You've been giving your life back by Christ. That same voice that gave you life is entitled to direct your life. And your life involves obligations, obligations to follow and obey him, obligations to serve others, obligations to represent him well and be his ambassador. What have you done with your life since you received it back? Or perhaps you don't know what I'm talking about. Perhaps you've never experienced anything like this. Perhaps you've never met Jesus. Do you want to be healed? Oh, I'm fine, thanks, you might answer. I don't need that religion stuff. I'm a pretty good person most of the time. I don't sin. Well, not very much anyway. Well, here's a challenge for you. Sin no more. Set yourself this task for the next seven days. Sin no more. Don't steal. Not even pirated TV shows. Don't lie. Not even little white lies that don't seem to hurt anybody. Don't be envious or jealous or lustful or greedy. Don't be proud. Don't use the name of Jesus Christ as a swear word. Love your neighbour as yourself. And most importantly, love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. 
then come back to me next week and tell me how successful you were. I bet you can't get through one day, let alone a whole week. And if you can't get through a week without sinning, you're in trouble. For the Lord requires you to obey all his commandments. Fail at one, or you might as well fail at all of them. So you might not realise it until you try and fail this experiment. You need to be healed. For something is broken inside of you. You can't heal yourself. You can't repair the damage done inside you by sin. It goes too deep. It goes into regions of the soul and the spirit that scalpels and self-help programs can't reach. But there is a solution. There is help and there is hope for you. When you come to that realisation that you don't measure up to God's standards and the realisation that you can't do it on your own, the only thing you can do is cry out, Yes, Lord, please heal me. Have mercy on me, a miserable sinner. And that's all you need to do for him to heal you. For he, he offers his healing his spiritual healing to everyone who calls on his name, to everyone who cries out to him for rescue. If you'll if you will not do that, then don't be surprised that something worse may happen to you. You have no one to blame but yourself. For Jesus' offer still stands. Do you want to be healed? It's closing prayer. Heavenly Father, let us never neglect such a great salvation as you have worked in us. Let us always be mindful of what you have saved us from and what you save us to. For you have called us not only to put our trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, for salvation, but you call us to follow him in obedience to sin no more. Help us by your Holy Spirit to live the sort of life that reflects you, that reflects your holiness, that reflects your mercy, that reflects your goodness. Help us to be grateful for the miracle of new life that you've brought about within us and to live accordingly. And we pray, Lord, for those who remain trapped in their sin by their crippled souls and by their dead hearts, would you raise them up to new life, Lord, to new spiritual health, and would you cause them to walk in your ways too? And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the Saviour of the world. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.